0: Welcome to the Calvary Baltimore Sermon Podcast with our senior pastor, Josh Planthold. Great to have you with us. Calvary meets in the Joppa Falston area, north of Baltimore. If you're nearby, come join us. For all the details, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. And now, here's this week's teaching.
1: I have the immense privilege as your pastor to go through one of my favorite portions of scripture, <laughs> and that is Matthew chapter 3. So we are going to be looking at a story of baptism today. And I will not berate you for 45 minutes that you all need to be baptized. That's not what this is going to be. Um, I, I'm hoping by the time that we're done, we, we grow in a deeper appreciation for what Christ has accomplished for us. Um, and then maybe seek to be participate of, uh, to participate in that and what he asks us to do. So, Matthew chapter three, verse one. <clears throat> in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So John the Baptist, the baptizer, is preparing Israel for the coming of the king, who we, a spoiler alert, know is Jesus. Uh, and so John is preaching repentance, and he's preaching about the kingdom. Verse 4, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Uh, If you've ever wondered why John is wearing a fur coat in the desert, uh, you'll have to check out tomorrow's Bible study at 10 a.m. online, Uh, but spoiler alert, it's what John the Baptist wore in the desert in Judea, Uh, and we'll, we'll run through that tomorrow. Uh, verse four, uh, five, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Now, notice the first group of people to get baptized by John. Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem are, the, are, are listed first in coming to John and you have to, To understand the significance of this. Because the people of God, the Israelites, were leaving the city of God to get right with God. The people of God are heading away from the temple, which was supposed to be the manifest presence of the Almighty of El Shaddai, in order to get right with God in the desert somewhere. This would have been so scandalous. Uh, to the temple workers, to the priests, to the scribes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees and Sadducees aren't going to like this very much now, are they? And they're going to march on down to the the wilderness and they're going to have a bone to pick and see what all this is about. Let's see how John talks to them. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John tells those who work in the temple that they're snakes. And not just snakes. Snakes that bite and kill people. The symbolism would not be lost on them now, would it? John's comparing them to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Who is who? Satan. He's calling the temple workers Satan. Or, John may be referring to the snakes that bit the people of God in the wilderness. And the reason I think that might be the case because uh, is because the antidote to the poisonous snakes in the wilderness was to look at what? The bronze snake raised up in the wilderness, which Jesus says is himself. These may be the very vipers that are poisoning and attacking the host of God's people. And Jesus will be the antidote raised, as he says in John 3. But, John also says to the Pharisees, who warned you of the wrath to come? Well, that's pretty intense. He's kind of saying, I wish you weren't warned so you would die. So uh, what is is John saying? And this is the first obvious clue in the gospel according to, to Matthew, that judgment is coming to Jerusalem. Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem over and over and over again in his ministry. And John the Baptist knows full well, as Jesus is going to say over and over and over again, that Jerusalem will be judged and destroyed. And what does he say? Not one stone will be left upon another. Right. And so John says, ah, you snakes, who warned you to come out of that city that's about to burn? Who warned you to come out of that city that's about to face judgment? John is not only calling the Pharisees and the Sadducees poison to the people. John is also declaring that Jerusalem must be destroyed under their leadership. You have doomed that city. Stay in that bed that you've made, <laughs> that you're lying in. Verse 7, we'll keep reading. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's awesome. John is telling these religious men, and these are brilliant men. I mean, they had the Torah memorized. You imagine, in order to be to, to share the, the, the Bible, you had to memorize it first. We'd be in trouble. They had the Bible memorized. And they had, they had the Torah studies memorized. Full-length commentaries memorized. This was what these men dedicated their lives to. But John is telling these religious men what all religious people need to hear. It's not enough to just know it. You need to bear fruit. It's simply not enough to know the word of God. It's not enough to take the sacraments. Oh, I've taken the Lord's Supper. I'm absolved. I've been baptized. I've been absolved. No, we must bear fruit. And specifically here to John, the fruit of repentance. And let me tell you here, this is not just true of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is also true of us. Because in all real repentance, there is real fruit. You know, one of the things I see when I'm walking with somebody through some sin if they're dealing with something, it's eating their life, and they know they need to get rid of this particular sin. One of the things that, that someone doesn't realize when they are drowning in sin. Is not only if you if you get rid of that sin, not only will you not drown anymore, but your feet will then be placed on solid ground. <laughs> what people don't realize is not only do you get rid of a sin when you give a sin up to God, but then He bears fruit in your life for the absence of that sin. For example, if you have someone who who constantly lies, well, guess what? They think everyone's a liar. Yeah. Well, the second they stop lying, God renews their mind, and all of a sudden they start trusting people, and the relationships flourish. There's fruit from the repentance. John is saying, Fine. Fine. You, you, you want to you do the Christian thing? You want to get baptized? You want to repent? Bear fruit. There needs to be fruit with, with real repentance. Verse 9. John goes on. He's on fire. This is so good. Mm. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for for Abraham. Isn't this great? No one's saved because of their ethnicity. Praise God. No one's saved because of their wealth. Here's a kicker. No one's saved because of their poverty. A lot of people think God owes them because of their poverty. No one's saved because of their social status. No one's saved because of their parents' faith. If anyone's had children, you know at some point in their life, they have, their parents' faith has to become their faith. There's that crisis that happens. There, uh, our memorization of Scripture does not save us. Our prayer life, our piety does not save us. The Jews thought they were saved because they were Jewish. Wrong. As Matthew is going to reveal in his gospel account, all men and women are saved by one way, and that's by way of the cross. As the reformers would say, solo Christus, through Christ alone. Uh, And then verse 10 goes on to say, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John points out that all people are trees. You know, you're a tree. <laughs> uh, blowing in the wind. But then John says that there are two kinds of trees. Uh oh. Trees that produce good fruit and not so much. And the trees that produce bad fruit or no fruit at all, they will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And the fruit John is looking for here specifically is repentance. And the fruit of repentance must be, must be in every believer's life. Because God doesn't save perfect people. He only saves sinners. And if that means God saved a sinner, that means you had sin. And if you had sin, that means you needed to repent. And if you truly repented, that means there must truly be fruit. There must be the fruit of repentance in all of our lives. This is what John is saying. Verse 11. I will baptize you with water for repentance. But here we go. You ready? Drum roll. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So we're going to pause for a minute because we have baptisms coming in two weeks. So I thought, let's just talk about baptism on Sunday The first thing that we should note here is that the baptism of John is not the baptism that the church has. This isn't our baptism. John baptizes people as a sign of repentance, repentance being simply a turning from sin and to God. Well, Christian baptism has quite a few more elements to it, uh, and so I think it'd be good to talk about this. So first, the Christian baptism involves repentance, there is a true element of that in all Christian baptism. When a Christian gets baptized, there is a sense they're repenting from their old life. They are repenting from their old sins. That they are done with the life of sin and are now forever turning towards a life of Christ. So there's an element of repentance. However, this repentance has taken a step further in Christ. Because a Christian baptism is not just a turning from sin. It's also symbolic. It's symbolic of the death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when a man or a woman goes down into that water and they are baptized, the the Greek word there for for baptism is baptizo, which means to submerge. Uh, So sorry to my Presbyterian brothers and sisters in here, but the Baptist got this one right. I'm not going to sprinkle you in the forehead (laughs) with some water. Uh, The the, the Greek there is is submerge. That is the terminology of the early church. Um, and, and that's a, I don't want to get down to how sprinkling became a thing, but biblically it was, it was a submerge. Well, when a Christian is submerged, baptizo in water, they disappear from the world. They symbolically die. And then they're held under the water. And, and, and that's, a, that's a picture of being buried And as they come up out of the water, unless I change my mind, some of you, (laughs) as the believer comes out of the water, this is symbolic of the resurrection in Christ. So as Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected, the believer is baptized in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and symbolically partake in the death the burial, and the resurrection of God. It is a believer's baptism that the baptized declares to the world that they have been born again and raised to new life. I was dead, and now I'm alive. That's what we declare at our baptism. But this time, born again and raised to new life in Christ, in Jesus, into a new family in the church, God's people. Now, fun fact In the early church, in some places, the baptized, the one being baptized, would take off their outer garments, (laughs) Uh, and then after baptism, they would put on a new and different set of clothes. It was a sign that they were a totally new person after being baptized. It was also not uncommon in the early church for the believer to change their name right after their baptism. Again, I am someone totally new. I've been born again. I've died and been born again. Also, John talks about how Jesus' baptism in verse 11 as one, quote, of the Holy Spirit and of fire. What's this pointing to? Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Jesus Christ is going to send the Holy Spirit into the world, Acts chapter 2, to baptize his believers. So in a sense, water baptism is symbolic of our spiritual baptism in Christ. Paul talks about this in, I think it's Galatians 3.27. Don't judge, but I think that's it. But in fact, as we see in today's text, and we see frequently throughout the book of Acts, water baptism is, is often associated with the baptism of the Spirit. And an important note, in the New Testament, sometimes people received the Spirit of God and then got baptized, And then sometimes people got baptized and then received the Spirit of God. And that's the traditional model. So so in my theology, a, a, a believer is given the Holy Spirit upon faith and conversion. And at baptism, we confess our faith and conversion to God, to the world, to the church, to anyone who wants to watch uh, and now our last point here: baptism, ideally, not always, but ideally, is something the body of Christ should participate for and be present for. When you read the book of Acts, typically, baptism is, do- is something. Baptism is something typically done amongst the church, and this is because someone getting baptized is not just getting baptized between them and God, but are also being baptized into the body of Christ, which is made up of what many members. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, for just as the, as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, a slave or free, and, and all were made to drink of one spirit. One Jew and Gentile, black, white, male, female, when we are baptized, when we are given the spirit upon conversion, we are all made whole into a singular body. And who is that body? The body of Jesus Christ. And it is at our water baptism that we declare it. So there's a corporate element to this. And and God's people are to be there and to celebrate because we're now one with this person. And we're to be there and testify and bear witness to the new life that God is bringing into his body and his kingdom. So there's an aspect, biblically, that the church should be there and say yes and amen. Christ has added to his body today. This is a beautiful thing. So John's baptism is different than a Christian Baptism. We don't have time, but Acts 19.1, if you want to read it. It's a story about how Paul ran into a bunch of John, John the Baptist disciples. And he's like, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they're like, what's that? <laughs> he goes, I got to tell you. But first, who were you baptized under? They said, under John the Baptist. And Paul essentially goes, oh, no, 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 no. We got to get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they get baptized, the Spirit descends. So John's and Jesus' baptism were different. Now, verse 13 through 17. Verse 13 through 17 is a difficult portion of Scripture, and quite honestly, the early church really struggled with this story, especially when you get to the patristic fathers, the first few hundred years in church history. Um, They they really struggled with this story. So the, the, the question is, since Jesus is perfect and is in no need of repentance, then why is he coming to John for a baptism of repentance? And this is the question I'm going to attempt to answer. You can throw a tomato at me or high five me when we're done. You you can decide. But I I want us chewing on this as we keep reading. Uh, Since Jesus is perfect and is in no need of repentance, then why is Jesus coming to John for a baptism of repentance? So that's our question we, we seek to answer. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? I, what I love, what I love about this portion is John doesn't understand why Jesus is here to get baptized either. <laughs> if John's confused, we should be like, hmm, huh. It says John is trying to dia diakolio, and it means to deter, to restrain. He's trying to hinder Jesus. No, no, no. From baptism. John knows who Jesus is. He's the coming king. He's been talking about him in the wilderness. And he has no idea why Jesus wants to get baptized. And then John says, I need to be baptized by you, God, Jesus, Essentially, Jesus, you don't need what I have, I need what you have. I'd like a fireball, God, you know. He's then verse 15, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. You know what I love with that? When you push back against God, and God essentially goes, I'm gonna get my way. You either keep fighting or consent. John consents, smart man. And when Jesus was baptized, submerged, uh, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. Uh, You don't need to know this. I don't know why I'm telling you, but I'm excited. Uh, When when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, 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 Matthew, Luke, and John, when they quote the Old Testament, they typically do it from the Greek Old Testament. Isn't that interesting? They quote from the Greek Old Testament, but Matthew seems to be the only gospel writer who pulls from the Hebrew. Specifically, and so that's why Matthew has this really, or um, uh, Mark has this really interesting allusion to to the prophet Isaiah, because um, uh, uh, Mark records and the heavens tore open, that it almost ripped apart, and God stepping through this tear. Anyways, it's from Isaiah. I just I got excited, just popped up. Um, uh, Where was I? I'm totally totally lost now. Did I talk about the dove descending? Now, okay, we're going to start back at verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, again, submerged, sorry, my Presby brothers, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Wouldn't you pay to see that? That would be awesome. A lot of people like to point to Noah's dove there. I I lean more Genesis 1, 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep, but we'll get into that tomorrow. Uh, Now, verse 17. Verse 17 is huge. This is the first time, think about this. This is the first time in hundreds of years that God publicly speaks to mankind. A few shepherds have seen some angels, But verse 17 is the very own voice of the Father recorded and being heard for the first time in hundreds of years. And he starts talking about his boy and his joy in his son. This is beautiful. Verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. The father has been quiet for hundreds of years and then he bursts through. He tears the heavens apart and says, my boy, I am so pleased. And Jesus knows. Did Jesus need to hear this? I don't think so. He knows he's his father's son. We saw that when he was a little boy in the temple. Wouldn't you know I'd be at my father's house? Like the Spirit visibly descending. This is a testimony to the people witnessing this. They have now both seen and heard that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One. He is Psalm uh, Psalm 2 verse 7, the promised Son of David, the Son of God Himself. And I would like to give a brief uh, apologetic note here on the Trinity. I don't get to talk about the Trinity much, but here we go. Uh, by Trinity, I mean the Christian God, that God is, is, is in three persons. That we worship God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and all three of them are three parts to a singular whole. That God is one person in three parts, and that's in the Shema. It's very clear, Our God is one. Now, there is not one person... Or, sorry, there isn't one word in the entire Bible that uses the word Trinity. Yet yeah, Christians claim to worship a triune God. So how does that work, right? We've built our faith upon a triune God, yet the word Trinity isn't listed in the entire Bible. So how do we handle that? Well, the word comes from the Latin trinitas, which is a combination of two words that Tertullian, I love Tertullian, Tertullian uh, smushed two words together, uh, trias meaning three and unitas meaning unity. So together, tr- trinitas, or what we would say in the English trinity, means threeness or tripleness, but in unity. Uh, well, here we are in Matthew three seventeen, and the word trinity is not used. But can't we clearly see that all three members of the Godhead are present? We have the Father speaking, the Son fulfilling, and the Spirit descending. Now, I bring this up because don't people like to play gotcha? Like, they'll say, well, you know, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. Well, it's very clear God's getting us out of here, so I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> and people like to play gotcha with the Trinity. Well, the word Trinity is not even in the Bible. And you know, one of the things that you can say is, is you can say, well, that's true. Neither is sushi, but I like that. But you can, you can That's true, the word trinity's not in the Bible. But then you can point to Matthew 3:17 and say, "But the doctrine of the Trinity is so plainly biblical." Matthew 3:17 is one such verse amongst many. That there are three Godheads. And of course, the, the last three verses of Matthew is this glorious crescendo of Matthew's account. I'm going to read it. It's the last three verses of Matthew. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And here we go. This is foundational today's text. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So not only does the doctrine of the Trinity exist, but according to Jesus, it is my job as the minister of the gospel to baptize people in the names of the Trinity, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. A Christian baptism, and this is, this adds meat. This is, this is post-Thanksgiving meal meat here that we are not just baptized in Christ. We are baptized in the Father as well. And in the Holy Spirit. A Christian baptism is one being born again. In both the name and the body and the spirit of the triune God. And that's today's text. Two thoughts. Why did Jesus get baptized? And then why must we? First coffee break. Mm-hmm. Oh, so First, let's start with Jesus. That seems appropriate, doesn't it? Why did Jesus get baptized? Matthew three fifteen tells us why Jesus must be baptized. But Jesus answered him, "Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." Okay, you got it. We can move on. No, no, no. Jesus gets baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Paul fleshes this out in in 2 Corinthians 5.17. I want to read it for you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. To be a believer in Jesus Christ, and what do I mean by that? You adhere to the church's confessions? (laughs) No. If your life is built upon the person and finished work of Jesus Christ... If your faith is rooted in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You have put your trust and your faith in the the birth, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Essentially, you believe what the Bible says about Jesus is true and live life in the reality of that truth. That is those who are saved, which is why I put so much emphasis on the biblical Jesus. Because there are a million versions of Jesus out there. But one of them are biblical. If we turn Jesus into a guru... into a yogi, into some Buddha somewhere, uh, and I'll I try to do good by him. You know, God is love. Hey, hey. Uh, it's not really the biblical Jesus. And we have to worry what our faith is built upon because it's not the man. So if we, are, if we build our lives, if you are a believer in the biblical Christ, then you are, according to the Bible, according to the Apostle Paul, a new creation. And your baptism then professes that. The old, Paul goes on to say, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When a believer goes down into that water, they die. The old passes away and the new comes out. Verse 18, And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. I love that verse. You know why? You know what the greatest problem of humanity is? It's that God is good. And we are not. And if God is good, that means God is just. And if God is just, that means he cannot deal with injustice. Which means what? We can not dwell with him forever in and of ourselves. We need someone to pay for the wages of sin, which is Death. In comes God's beloved Son, in whom he is well pleased. And Jesus died for the sin of the world. So all who stand before God as a uh, a spotless lamb, as having peace with the Father, are those who have said, I choose Jesus Christ to pay for the wages of my sin. And his death upon the cross is that payment. Jesus has brought us peace with the Father, because we couldn't earn it ourselves, 316 commandments of the Mosaic law prove that. No one can keep the Old Testament law. Yeah, Jesus could. And then we're going to hop down to verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Now listen to verse 21. It's so good. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. You know, we can become the righteousness of God. Doesn't that blow your mind? (laughs) Here's what Matthew, here's what's happening in Matthew. Jesus on earth was both truly man and truly God. Did you know that? Like everything that he accomplished, everything Jesus accomplished on earth, he accomplished in his humanity. It's really important we recognize that. But it's also true that everything Jesus accomplished on earth, he also accomplished in his divinity. Because Jesus was both truly man and truly God. Now today's story, Jesus shows up to John to get baptized, and John says, "Uh, you should be baptizing me, Jesus. But Jesus says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus did not need to repent for many sins now, did he? No, obviously. But in his humanity, Jesus needed to be righteous and, to fulfill, and fully dedicated to God. So, in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus fully submits to the will of the Father. And though Jesus is truly God, he is also truly man. And so Jesus, in his obedience to the Father, in his humanity, gets baptized, acknowledging that he is amongst the sinful people. Jesus gets baptized in his humanity because of the sins of humanity. As Paul said, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus, in his abundance, Lavish love and grace and obedience to the Father. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness in his humanity for us. That we might stand spotless and in peace before God the Father in Him in Christ. Which is what, now knowing the, the, the self sacrificial nature that was Jesus Christ, the compassion He had for us fallen people, doesn't it make so much sense now why God tore the heavens apart and says, My boy, in whom I am so pleased. <laughs> He looked down and finally there was a son of Adam who was doing it. Who could finally live a life worthy. Uh, Intended. When God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he didn't want us to feel pain. He didn't want infighting and family. He didn't want addiction. He didn't want jealousy. He didn't want rage. He didn't design us for this stuff. And then we sinned and we fell and God had to kick us out of the garden because the only thing worse than us sinning and dying was to live forever in sin. So he had to kick us out of the garden. And then for thousands of years, Cain kills Abel. Noah's getting drunk. His kids are exposing his nakedness. David's having adultery. Saul's a hot mess. Elijah's running in fear. The prophets are getting solved in half. And finally, Jesus Christ comes. And my boy, my boy, he's doing it. So, secondly, why must Christians be baptized and two quick parts. We're going to have an A and B here. You thought you were getting away with two points. Oh, you suckers. Uh, a, a believer must be baptized, not in order to be saved. I, a lot of people think you have to be baptized in order to be saved. I don't land there. I could be wrong, but I don't land there. And I like the point of the thief on the cross who didn't know anything about anything. And today you will be with me in paradise. But... It is in baptism that we partake in the life of Christ. A believer must be baptized because, as Jesus received baptism and did so for us in his humanity, well, the same is true in reverse. When a believer gets baptized and submerged, we are being baptized in Christ's divinity. And we come out of that water in Christ's body, in John 17, the literal family of the triune God. At our baptism, we declare our royal status. That through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, through his body and and blood spilt for the sin of the world, we are made right and one in faith with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. As Jesus identified with humanity in his baptism, as believers identify with his divinity at our baptism, Jesus identified with humanity and we identify with his divinity when we get baptized. It is at our baptism that the Christian declares to everyone and everything that we belong to the triune God both now and for the rest of eternity. Upon our baptism, it's almost as if we hear in Christ, oh, my beloved sons and daughters with whom I am well pleased. Because we put on the divinity of Christ in these moments. So I want to tell you something. I I really don't believe you need to be baptized to make it to heaven to be saved. But that being saved, baptism is so foundational to the Christian life. If you are a professing Christian who has not been baptized then there's only really two options. One, either you don't understand the significance of baptism, or two, something's very, very wrong. Very, very wrong with your walk that you must tend to. I'm not trying to guilt anybody. Pastors make a horrible Holy Spirit. You don't need me clubbing anybody to convince anybody. And if you're not ready, that's okay. There's, there's times where you need to get your heart right before God. Okay, I'm not, I'm not this isn't, get baptized now. But at some point, you're, 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 you're 50, you're 60. At some point, this becomes inappropriate before God. Now at the same time, as Martin Luther once said, "There is no, there is on earth no greater comfort than baptism." Luther I, <laughs> over and over and over again, he drew. He struggled with deep depression. And almost daily he would remind himself, "I have been baptized in Christ." For the rest of your life, you can always draw back to your baptism as a remembrance that I am God's son and I am, in him I am well pleased that you belong to God and that he belongs to you. Now, very quickly, B, a believer gets baptized most simply because God tells you to. <laughs> when you read the New Testament, plainly it assumes that if you are a believer, you have been baptized. In the book of Acts, you'll notice Someone gets saved, great, and they dunk them. I mean, it's immediately. It says, them and their household were baptized. I'll get you, and I'll get you, and I'll get you. And there wasn't, you know, let me make sure I got a cute baptism outfit first, or let me make sure my hair doesn't look bad when I come out of the water. No, put on a long t-shirt, let's go. And they dunk them. In the Great Commission, Jesus' last words to the church in his earthly ministry were what? Baptize and get baptized. So as we we close, a Christian gets baptized. I don't know what else to tell you. And a Christian encourages others to be baptized. Do you know why we don't hear a lot about baptism today? Because it takes an actual commitment to do something. Who can't raise their hand and go, phew, glad I'm going to heaven. Saved, I raised my hand at a conference 25 years ago. No, believers got baptized into a new family. They died and we're born again. It is our duty and our privilege to belong to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And God wants us. God's desire. You ever hear someone say, I don't know what the will of God is? Well, here's one of them. <laughs> here's, here's part of it. Get baptized. And God wants us to announce it and profess at our baptism that we belong to the triune God. That's what this is. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it does not return void. We thank you, Jesus, that you in all things modeled righteousness for us. You did not need to be baptized, and yet here you come to fulfill all righteousness in your humanity. God, we thank you for the example you've set before us. God, we ask that you would place a burning desire in our lives to to model ourselves after Christ and all that he had accomplished. Help us to be truly godly men and women for your glory. We pray that you would help us to be Christ-like husbands and fathers, and wives and mothers, and sons and daughters, and neighbors, and co-workers, and employees and employers. God, help us help the person and work of Jesus Christ to permeate every aspect and area of our lives. And God, we pray for those in here that do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior that they would relent today. <laughs> and may receive this so glorious salvation. We pray for anyone here that is on the fence about getting baptized, God. We ask that you would encourage them to do so if it is right. And God, if not something is off, God, meet with them about it and talk to them about it. We ask if anyone needs prayer, that they receive prayer up front here with, uh, with our prayer team up by the side. God, we thank you for drawing us here today and we ask that you would send us out in fresh Trinitarian power. Jesus' name.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We love you, God. Amen. Thanks for joining us for today's message from Calvary Baltimore. Please keep in touch. Send us an email with your questions, prayer requests, or just to say hi. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate to support the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. And if you're in the area, stop by on a Sunday morning. For directions and service times, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. Finally, if you're unable to come see us in person, we also live stream on our website and on our Facebook page. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Until next time, keep drawing closer to God through the reading of His Word and join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Sermon Podcast.